0: Anybody wearing steel-toed boots today? He's the only safe one. This sermon is going to step on your toes. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's going to step on your toes. I know it is. As I was preparing it, it stepped on my toes. Um, Just wanted to give a disclaimer. We're in Luke chapter 12. We're going to go to verse 13. I'd like to pray before we start. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your word again. As we do every week, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Luke making these efforts to record your teachings, preserve them for us. Lord, I pray that you would just be with us this morning as we look at this next teaching, Lord, that you presented 2,000 years ago, but yet is so still so very relevant Today, Lord, I pray that you help us to have our eyes open to your truth and your word. I pray that you help us to see these things through our understanding of all that you are for us. I pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. So, we're right in the middle of a big chunk of Jesus' teaching. In fact, if you have a red letter edition of the, your Bible, you may see that like there's several pages in a row. All read Jesus' teaching. We're right in the middle of this. In fact, we're directly in the middle of a teaching right now. You go back to Luke chapter 12, verse 12, Jesus was teaching. Verse 13, Jesus gets interrupted, and so we hear this. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, so he's teaching, and this guy interrupts the teaching and says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. People would often ask a trusted rabbi to settle disputes, especially disputes in relation to the law. God's law had how inheritances were to be played out, how those things were to happen, and most things were covered in the law. And so this is actually a, a bit of a show of respect to Jesus by this guy to say, hey, I'm trusting you as a rabbi to tell me to settle this dispute. At least superficially, this guy has some respect for Jesus to ask him this. What's behind the dispute? We don't know. Is this the younger brother? Is it not being shared at all? Is it being shared incompletely? Maybe it's a piece of land that's not being split, and they're holding on to it as one piece and, and keeping it that way. And this, this particular brother is saying, hey, I think we should split it up. We don't know. We have no idea. I do have to say this is typical, though, as a teacher. I can't tell you how often I've been uh, teaching, and just when I think my students are right with me. And I say, does anybody have a question? And inevitably somebody raises their hand, I think, oh good, they, they've been paying attention today, and they go, Can I go to the bathroom? Yeah, I mean it's it's never, never, I I just my hopes are always dashed. Um I have to say as well that Jesus' response is not kind. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Jesus' response here to this guy is not pleasant. <laughs> he says to him, and this man. It, depending on the context, when, in the Greek, when you address somebody this way, depending on the context, it, it can be a very harsh response. In this context, it's all agreed very harsh. Jesus says to him, man, so if anybody goes, I don't think you should, do, Jesus did it. Man, what's wrong with you, man? Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Okay. Will Jesus be judge? Yes, we know he will eventually, right? Judge of all the earth, but not yet. His purpose is here and now on this earth is to seek and to save the lost. This is not his current business. And I think maybe Jesus can see beyond the question to something else that is at stake here. Something else going on in the heart of this man. He doesn't even offer an interpretation of the law. He just says, What's wrong with you, basically? Who made me the judge? I'm not the judge I'm not going to settle this dispute with you, my friend. He doesn't even offer anything, but turns back to the disciples and turns this into an opportunity to teach his disciples something. So he gets interrupted, he has this response to the guy, completely leaves him in the dust, turns back around to his disciples. Resumes teaching, but now directly related to what this guy has brought out. So he says this next, verse 15. And he said to them, to the disciples, those that were listening, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay? Notice there's two warnings there. Take care and be on your guard both of them have this sense of watchfulness double watchfulness i mean this is serious jesus is saying be careful now i know that some of you like me if there's something that you ought to be careful of you tend to still get as close to it as you could possibly get does anybody in here do that you know now some of you are not like that you know if my mom was here i'd i'd mention bears you know she be careful of bear. If she's a sign that says watch out for bears, she's gonna to move to a different state. Okay, I mean that's that's her. I mean, there's some of us that we're not gonna get even close to the dangerous thing. And I think that there's some wisdom in that. Why ought we, in fact, with a double warning of be careful, this is a dangerous thing, why would you want to get as close as you can to the line? I don't think you ought to. And I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Watch out. This is a seriously dangerous thing and the thing that he mentions is this word covetousness all kinds or all sorts of covetousness right the word that's translated here is covetousness is basically two words the first meaning plenty and the second one meaning to possess it's like having wanting or desiring to have stuff right now already some of you may feel jesus's sandaled foot on the tips of your toes whether you have lots of stuff or not we live in a culture that wants lots of stuff and as much as we try and I'm going to be honest with you as much as I try to escape this it's an ever-present reality I think in probably every one of us in this room to some degree or another one's life though does not consist in the abundance of the possessions There's several times in the Bible where this word is used, it's used in some Bible lists. I just want to share three of them. I think I got three or four of them here With I'm going to share with you. One is in Mark chapter 7. I just want to read it. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, this is Jesus teaching, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and there it is, coveting, wickedness, deceit, uh, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person covetousness made it on that list Romans chapter 1 there's another list has this word included in it since they did not see fit to acknowledge God God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice they're full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness they are gossips slanders haters of God insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil, and then the worst of all, crimes ever, disobedient to parents. Did you hear that, kids? It's on the big list. Right, Todd? It's on the big one. That's that's a big deal. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Covetousness makes it on this list. Verse 32 of that passage goes on to say that though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Ephesians 5 has another list, but sexual morality and all impurity, or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. This is something that should not be with us, covetousness. Colossians 3, final list, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's easy for us when we hear these lists, there's some that we're like, yeah, but this one, I think there is a tendency to say, yeah, but to hold on to it a little bit. That's what I hope that we all see today. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality and purity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which he says is really this, with a different mask, it is idolatry. You look at People in the Old Testament who bowed down to idols, and we we consider that ridiculous or ludicrous, and yet many of us worship at the feet of our stuff. You may feel Jesus' sandaled foot getting a little bit further on the toes. The second part of the verse could be understood in a few different ways. It's really interesting. I'm going to mention it as a side comment. We're building a thought process here, we're going to get to a main point here in a few minutes. I'd like to share with you a couple different versions of this particular verse that I read to you. Here's the ESV that we had. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The NIV puts it this way. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It calls it greed instead of covetousness. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And if I got all this stuff, there's my life. The King James, take word." Take take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth, right? So things that you have, it's not a determining factor of who you are. In the New American Standard, he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one is affluent does his life consist of his possessions. Not even when you got it does that define who you are. I can't speak for all of you, but I think it's difficult for me to separate my life from my stuff. I find it hard to do that. I like to think that I'm free of those things. I like to think sometimes that if God called me to, to give up everything, but, but I, I'm honest, I, I can stand in front of you and tell you that it's hard for me when it gets down to it, when it gets right down to it, to separate me from my stuff. You know how it shows itself? When my vehicles break down, it's not when the stuff is good. It's when the stuff goes bad. I suddenly feel like I'm, my life. What am I saying when I say that? Right. In my in some way, my life consists in my stuff. And so when my stuff is bad and I go, it's bad because my stuff is bad. Am I not exhibiting some of that already there? I know it's frustrating when things break down and things don't work and you're trying to fix things or when you you have a need and you're trying to meet that need and the wallet is, you open it up, there's like moths flying out of it and stuff. And I mean, I, I get it. But we have to beware and be careful and be on guard, Jesus says, of this thing. And now... I don't have to come up with an example. Jesus gives us one. He tells a parable to illustrate this point. And this is where the toe-stepping gets a little bit more serious. He told them a parable, verse 16, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. His crops had a high yield. His stocks had a high yield. I don't know if they had stocks back His business had a great return, a great profit. Whatever it was, his was definitely a physical return. He had more stuff. It just, I I imagine him maybe even saying, How have you been doing this year? And him going, God has blessed me. Right? Not wrong. That is God's blessing. He has this physical return. What should one do in this situation? What what should you do when these things happen? When you get blessed in such a way? Obviously, we don't want to squander it, but how do we respond as God's children? He asks himself what to do. This is the first clue that something is awry. Because who ought he to be asking what to do with this blessing? Isn't it God himself? But listen to what he says, verse 17. And he thought to himself, self, what shall I do? Well, self, I don't know. What's your question, self? Well, self, I have nowhere to store my crops. Oh, self, that's a tough thing. I feel for you. You've got too much stuff and not enough places to put it. I know, self, that stinks. What are we gonna do? I got an idea, self says. And he says this, which by the way, there are 54 words in the Greek, 54 words in this parable, 18 of them are I, me, my, and mine. That maybe is our second clue that something's awry. May I throw in there that maybe these are the clues that we ought to be asking ourselves when we have a blessing Do you just go to yourself and say, what do I want to do? Or are you going to God saying, what would you like me to do? Is our life dominated when it comes to our stuff about what I have and how this can me and my and mine? Verse 18, he, because he asked himself, responds to himself. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now allow yourself again to be honest here. Is this not an indictment against most of us? And isn't there some wisdom in this? I mean, what about, what about the ant and the grasshopper? Who's ever heard the, 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 the fable of the ant and the grasshopper, right? What's the, what's the grasshopper do? Grasshopper, he's not, he's not playing anything. He's just having a ball, isn't he? And the ant is like, No, I'm working, buddy, saving up, and I get it all stored up. In fact, there is even a biblical equivalent that in Proverbs chapter 6. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread. In summer, it gathers her food and harvest. How long, which, verse 9, my mom quoted to me quite often in the morning when it was time to get out of bed. How long will you lie there, O sluggard, when you arise from your sleep? And then this next part. Quite often, I'm sure Actually, probably heard this one too. No, you always got up on time, didn't you? Yeah. No. A little sleep, a little slumber. She would say that to me. Literally, I can hear her voice in my head saying this to me right now. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want like an arm. So there is, there is some measure of wisdom in planning ahead, is there not? I get it. In fact, this next verse, as this man's self dialogue continues, the next verse sounds, I'm going to be honest, it sounds a little bit like the American dream. And if I'm to be realized, it sounds a little bit like my dream <laughs> at times. He continues his dialogue with himself, by the way. I will say to my soul, Soul? Why, yes. You have ample goods laid up for many years. I do, don't I? You, soul, you are so right. I know, soul. You have done a great job. I, I know. I've worked hard for that. We got it. Soul, good job. You have got a lot laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, maybe the eat, drink, and be merry, that would be a clue that something is off as well. As much as joyful feasting is something that the Bible doesn't speak against, this particular phrase is, I think, never used in a positive light. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? I mean, there's a sense of, like, grasshopperishness in that moment that isn't good. But what I found really interesting and went down a little rabbit trail of study with is the word relax. The word relax. You can find this word used by Jesus on another occasion. I'm going to put up a verse and you tell me if you can see where it's at. I, I probably have it highlighted so that it won't be a hard thing to do. Oh, I do, yeah. Okay. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can also find this word with a different prefix, but the same root word in Hebrews, I think used over 20 times. I'd like to share with you just a little bit of, out of Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. I had to really trim down. I want to keep this to the point. But I want you to think about this concept of rest, that this guy... Once. I think the problem is when he wants it. Because Jesus even himself, he offers rest as a good thing. Come to me. I'm going to give you this. Listen to Hebrews chapter three. I'm going to go verses seven and eight first. It says, therefore, the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews, is right. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This is, by the way, a quote from Psalm 95. It's quoting a, a chunk of Psalm 95. Hebrews 10:11. still quoting, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, this is God speaking, uh, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95 is talking about the Jews after leaving Egypt, put God to the test, and he excluded them from entering the promised land, his rest. So there becomes this connection in the Jewish mind of the promised land and rest. Okay, But the writer of Hebrews wants us to notice that this was written in David's time, and as a continued warning. So when David wrote this in Psalm 95, it was meant to be not just... Uh, a lesson we learned there, but a lesson to apply today that we may not enter God's rest as well, which is weird because the writer of Hebrews is pointing out they were in the promised land when he said that. And if you read Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 together, the author makes an amazing argument about why that's the case. But Hebrews, the author comes down, I'll go to verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now to save time, I'm going to skip down to chapter four, but I want you to know the argument there in chapter three is all about the fact that this call to rest is still being given and still not entered into. And the author here wants to see that even today we have this call. He's calling us to enter into his rest, which we see Jesus teaching himself. Hebrews chapter four verse one says this, don't have oh there we go. Did I get a verse ahead of myself already. I'm sorry i got to say something when I do that. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, even now. This is way later than that. Verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken, and the author of Hebrews goes all the way back. Like this, this concept started at the very beginning. For somewhere he has spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Does that sound familiar? Where, what book of the Bible is that in? Genesis. Good job, guys. You, got a, you get a piece of candy. I don't have any candy. God rested from his work. His rest is something that is still offered. In fact, to pull in what Paul's been talking about with Joshua entering into the promised land, notice what the writer of Hebrews says here. For if Joshua had given them rest, didn't they get in there? And allot the land? Where's the rest? If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, Psalm 95. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Forever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so then you get this weird thought of there's an already rest as we enter into God's work. We're resting, but we're not completely in his rest. And we call that here the already but not yet. Because he says that, verse 10, forever has entered God's rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. But then the very next verse says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. As Christians, we enter that already but not yet rest. We've rested from the works of salvation. I am no longer working to be saved, right? If you're working to earn anything before God, wasted time. That work has been done in Christ, and we, we rest from those works, but we continue to strive because we want to enter that eternal rest. That's what the author of Hebrews says. That's a weird balance. But I think our whole lives are kind of a weird balance sometimes, aren't they? I think that this is at the heart of this rich fool and at the heart of his foolishness and I think maybe even at the heart of all foolishness to want heaven now. Because what did he say? Soul, now you can relax. You can rest. Now this is where my toes got stepped on the biggest. Because my the idol of my heart, pretty much my whole life has been, I just now I I don't call it rest, I call it peace and quiet. Anybody in here just go? You have those days where I just, you know what? I had somewhere in my head, I envisioned, I had a vision at some point in my future, of this time where I would be able to get up leisurely, have my cup of coffee. Ready and brood somehow. I don't know who did that in my vision. Maybe it was Charity. She does that sometimes. It's really, I get a glimpse of my vision. It's like heaven. And I and I envision this rest and relax and like nothing pressing, nothing broken. The house is in order. The kids are all doing what they're supposed to do. Everybody else that I know has kind of fallen in line with what they're supposed to do. And I imagined this time where I could get up on that Saturday morning and sip my coffee and be at rest. And I have never gotten that. Ever. To be clear... There have been times where I have been very angry with God when I'm not getting it. Like, Lord, what are you doing? Just when I think I've got all of my ducks in a row, one of them steps out of line. Right? Now, here's where it gets tricky. Because this idea of stuff, I think, is bigger than just the physical stuff. I think it's bound up in this idea of rest. We want the heaven thing now. And we get pretty ticked off when we don't get it. And sometimes we get ticked off at people when they're ruining it for us. And I think probably at the heart of it all is a covetousness that Jesus is warning us about. This is a, this is a weird one because th- there are some degree, and I, I'm, I'm just trying to think out loud with you for this next little statement. To some degree, there's some of that striving for God's good grace and his joy and those sorts of things right here and now. To some degree, we are to strive for and enjoy those good things in Christ even now. That's true. And I feel like one of the reasons why Jesus says you've got to beware of this, take heed and beware, is because the line between just enjoying God's gifts and, and trusting in him and enjoying what he, what he has given to you now and, and living in the already but not yet, there's a, this fine, fine line, like a hair between this and covetousness. I think there's a lot of Christian teachers and Christian pastors that walk the edge of that line with one foot on both sides I'm going to call out 3 you ready to have if this steps on your toes I apologize not really <laughs> um the obvious one that I'm going to call out is Joel Olstein and your best life now The only way you can have your best life now, I stole this line. The only way you can have your best life now is if after you die, you go to hell. That's the only way you could have your best life right now. But I want to be fair about my indictment against the ones that I put up here. If you you dig into what they're saying in these books that I'm going to show, if you dig into what they're saying, which I'm going to honestly say, I've not read any of them all the way through. I've read summaries. I've read about them. I've hit the main points. In fact, all three of them that I have have like eight steps or 12 steps or seven steps, okay, to get this life now. And all of them walk this line. In fact, you'll find in there words of like selflessness and giving. You'll find those things in there. It's not like I'm saying that what they say, that every single thing they say is wrong. But what I am saying is that it's walking this line And I think there's a foot over on the other side that Christ would describe as covetousness. Okay? You ready for the three? Okay. Now, I didn't notice it so afterwards, but all three of them have their hands like this, and they're all smiling. I'm never going to buy another book that has somebody on the front going like this. (laughs) I'm reading a little bit much into that. That's not it. But... If you look at all of them, in fact, uh, I was looking at some of these, and there's some of these, the, the things, the tw- to enjoying this now, to have this now, to best life now, there, there's, there's aspects of this that speak to something that is true. But I think where it misses it is that it's just a step over the line of getting it now. Because when they're talking about the life, they're talking about these things they're talking about right here right now. I found that that fine line between what these teach and what the gospel teaches is found portrayed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the life of Abraham. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. God. But don't miss this two verses later, verse 13. These all, all the ones, not just Abraham, all the ones living, living up to this, all, the po- all of them coming up to this point, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, And having acknowledged that they were just strangers and exiles on the earth, you can give me nothing in this life, Christ. The rich man, before he even has time to enter his rest, his foolishness is called out by God himself. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul, that soul that you were talking to and having that great conversation with, it will be required of you. And the things you have prepared, oh my gosh, what a harsh statement by God. Even speaking in this man's, because I can't help but think that this guy, when he hears these words, this parable of this guy, when he hears these things, how many, when they hear those moments, when they breathe their last and they stand before God, are still going to be worried about, who's got my stuff? And God just calls them out on it. Whose will they be? A rhetorical question that says, who cares? Who cares? ridiculous question that doesn't really matter whose things will they be this calls to mind if you're looking by the way for books to read and want a better author let me read a couple paragraphs out of a book called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper an American Tragedy how not to finish your one life I will tell you what a tragedy is Piper writes I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. If your toes have not been properly stepped on, I hope they are now. Because there's a part of this. I mean, I can sit up here and I can, I can read it in such a way that sounds like, Right? But I know there's a little bit of me that wants that too. Like if I, grant grant me three wishes. One of them might be, I would love to just be walking the beach. (laughs) I may not be collecting shells. But that's in there. And when I read these things and I read what Christ has to say about this rich man and his planning ahead, I can't help but think what measure of an indictment is that against me and my own heart as well. Have I been walking that line as close as I can get of wanting heaven, wanting rest now? God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Daryl Bach, one of the commentators, says the main element of the comparison is that wealth is ultimately a wasted accumulation for the person cannot present it to God for admission to heaven. Life does not consist of one's possessions, and to regard life as such is to be gripped by greed. It is important to note that the issue in the parable is not wealth, but how wealth is directed. The sin is accumulated in riches for oneself, And so Jesus ends his parable With a statement of truth that we ought to take to heart. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, which I read and I thought, man, is that a thing? To be rich toward God? You can be rich toward God. In another teaching of Jesus, we get the same thing expressed in a slightly different way, and this is another one that my mother made me memorize as a child, and it's never left my head. Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves, and I always focus on the first part, but think about the second part, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth where rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there's your heart. What do you treasure might be a great question to ask. What do you treasure most of all? Sometimes those treasured things show up when we don't get them, not when we get them. And when they're taken away and we stomp our foot and we get all mad or we go into a spiral of fear because I don't have my stuff. To protect me from what may be coming down the line, is that not an indictment that says you're trusting in your stuff? I'm going to close with one more thought from Daryl Bach. He quotes another commentator uh, with the last name Pilgrim. I didn't get what the guy's first name was, but he he states that another he says another commentator sees three errors in this guy. And I, I when I hit these, I thought I, I got to include these. I was going to. Skip this, but I thought this is a great way to close with these three errors. The three errors that he sees are these hoarding one's possessions, assuming that life can be secured and measured by possessions, and regarding property as one's own. Now, I don't want to ever from the pulpit mention that I know who Seinfeld is, but I do. And there's a character on Seinfeld named George Costanza. And there's an episode where George realizes that everything he does is wrong. And so he decides in one episode to do just the opposite. And unfortunately, because I am who I am, this came to my mind. And I thought, you know what? There may be some element of truth to this that if this is the error, maybe we ought to look at doing the opposite. To be careful and to be on guard, and to take heed, like Jesus says, of this thing called covetousness. So instead of hoarding one's possessions, do I want to say this out loud? Maybe we need to get rid of our stuff. Maybe not all of it at once. Some of you are having a panic attack right now. But if you see it being a hindrance, or if you see it being a comfort, you might need to start giving your stuff away. If you see it being a hindrance, or if you see it being a comfort, you might need to start giving it away. When I say that, I know that we start to think, well, what about like in five years from now, if I give all my stuff, well, what about, what about, you're not thinking big enough. What about a 1,000 years from now? What about 10,000 years from now? If you see it being a hindrance or a comfort, it might be all the treasure you get and all the value that you have in this life or the next. You might need to start giving your stuff away. I always think of the story. I learned this from charity. as a singer named Rich Mullins who when he was at the height of his popularity and I'm sure making a decent amount of money off of the income from the music he was producing, he told his church, and I don't know all the details, but I know that he told somebody at his church to say, hey, I don't, don't, don't tell me how much I'm making. Just give me what a typical person's salary was. At the time, it was like $23,000 a year. Give me a typical working man's salary and whatever the rent just take the, I don't even wanna know. Whatever, just church takes it, put it to whatever use you wanna do. we may need to adopt more of that. I know some of you in this room are going, I'm barely scraping by. I know. It's easy to be in the barely scraping by and be the most covetous person in the room. Which, by the way, if you start trying to give your stuff away, you may find that it flows naturally into doing the opposite of the next one. Instead of assuming... Life can be secured and measured by his possessions. Take no security from yourself. Absolutely no, no security. from This one's a hard one to say, how are we going to do it? That's why I think the first one might be important to really put this one into practice. But what about, what about, what about, I, I'm, this, I'm, I know. I feel like I should be sitting down there next to the rest of you. I have no desire when I was working the sermon, to get rid of all my stuff. I got some stuff I like. I like getting as many tools as possible, even if I don't know how to use half of them. In my head somewhere, I feel like there's some safety in that. Because one day, I'm going to need something that will do this thing, and so I need to have that thing. It was terrible for me when I was a furniture mover because when people are like, I'm not going to keep that, I go, I'll take it. We're going to throw this away. All right, I'll take it. Got some nice stuff. But it's easy to cross that line, is it not? And find some security in having this stuff. In fact, I found a lot of the things that I want to hold on to are not because I need them right now, but because I think I might, I've envisioned a need in the future for those things. I think that there must be, let me put it this way. I'm going to put it up here in just a, a statement I think there must be some room in your personal economy to eliminate all stored security. If to you that is unthinkable, then I think you need to read the Gospels again. Because sometimes he does that with people. Sometimes he says, take everything you have and sell it all. If there's no room in your personal economy for that option, something's off. I'm not saying that he calls every single one of us to do that. But he does call some of us to do that. And every single one of us ought to be ready to do that. Are you? My hope is that we see some of these things and we find in our, at work in ourselves some measure of covetousness, that we will stop seeing those things as a security and start seeing them as detestable. Got to get rid of this stuff. It's eaten up at me. My hope is that if you're sitting here today and that covetousness is at work in your heart, that you will just go off the deep end. I believe wholeheartedly that God will meet every need you have on this earth. Even if you go nuts crazy with your stuff and give it all away. There needs to be some room in your economy. So, in, Which is, this is hard to preach because I know that when I say this, I know that I'm setting myself up for that because if God calls me, I can't, I can't preach it and then not back it up i got to be ready to be like, give it all. Just, I'm ready, Lord. And if he calls upon me to do that, I hope that, number one, I can see it for what it is, and number two, I can do it. That's my hope. But there must be some room in your economy for the ability to eliminate all stored security, reserved security, stored up security. I mean, if honestly, if God called you today to say, hey, you got that nice retirement account you've been saving up, just give it all away. There's got to be some room in your economy where God might call you to do that and you might do it. If you go, no, there's no way that there's got to be some room in your economy to be ready to give it all away. Finally, I think this last one helps regarding property as one's own, the opposite. Start. Or begin being a steward of God's stuff. I think this is a great way. In fact, I probably should have put this one first. Start by thinking everything that you've got, instead of thinking of it as yours, and like this rich fool, my barns, my produce, my this, and I will do that. If you just said everything I own is God's, everything I have, every single penny I have is God's, and you start laying it out and saying, "Lord, I'm thinking about. I mean, I think this is a great way to live." James talks about this when he talks about just even making plans for the weekend. Lord willing, I'm gonna. I'm planning on doing this, or I'm planning. God, this is your money. I'm planning on doing these things here. I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about. I mean, let, even down to some vacation. I'm planning on taking this vacation, and spending this money. I think it's probably good for our family. We need to get away. We need to do these things. But Lord, you, what do you want me to do with this? And there needs to be some room in there. For God to possibly say, no, I want you to give it all to and for you to go, okay. All right. One day, every single one of us and everything that you have, it will all be left behind and you will take nothing with you But there is an element of how you live this life that influences what will be. To lay up treasures in heaven and to be rich toward God. I think the beginning of understanding that is to end the covetousness, to fight against it with every ounce of energy we have. We live in a culture that's wrapped up in it. Let us be against that culture by saying, Lord, I'm ready to give it all away. Now, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray that if God would call us to do that, that we would be ready and willing to do that. Now, if you're like me, he's going to have to say it very clearly. Like, I'm not going to be giving all my stuff away on a whim like I think he did. <laughs> but let's pray that God would be very clear. If he wants us to do something along those lines, that we, we are a people, a people of God who take no stock in our possessions. or if you want to give us, have us give it all away, we're ready to do it. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray now, sincerely from the depths of my heart, Lord, that you would help us if you call upon us to give it all away. Lord, I pray that we would be ready and willing to do that. I'm going to say this again, Lord, for myself. Lord, I pray that you'd help me Lord, if you were to call me to just give it all up, give everything away, help me not to fear, but help me to be in faith with my eyes on another country, ready to release all things now, not just at the end. God, help me to be ready to do that. And Lord, if it be your will, The hard part to pray is, Lord, if it be your will, not just ready, but Lord, if there's any opportunity that that might be a benefit to your kingdom, help us to be the sort of people that would even seek it out. That we would not hold our stuff with tight, clenched fingers, our knuckles white. Would help us not to do that, but to hold it open-handed to you. It's your stuff. Do with it as you will. I pray these things in the name of Jesus that you will hear our prayer and work in our own hearts with each and every aspect of this. Lord, destroy covetousness in our hearts. In the name of Jesus and by all that he's done, I pray this now. Amen.